I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. It is the holiday season. It is. It is. It is time for Toyotathon, the Honda days. <laughs> where people that I that don't exist in real life <laughs> make it seem that it's very common that you gift your loved one a car without talking about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm sure it's all a scam by uh, the people that make uh, bows that are six feet in diameter. Is that like a... Th- okay, aside from like super rich, ridiculous people, like <laughs> does any like middle class even person do that? Like mm-hmm. no one does that. <laughs> You're not just like, surprise, honey, I bought a car because you know what would happen? Your honey would beat the <laughs> out of you for like, what are you doing spending money without talking to me? I hope you like it, because I put our household in debt for for the next eight years. Or more. (laughs) But there was a time when an automobile purchase was something that would be exciting and fun, and not necessarily uh, uh, that same sort of headache. We're talking, of course, about the 1920s. They didn't know how to make it a headache yet. (laughs) <laughs> they they had not invented headaches back in the 1920s. That's why everyone was so happy. Well, they didn't really know how to take full advantage of you yet. <laughs> also, all, all the wild drinking, the headaches weren't invented. Who cares? Just go for it. Yeah. Yeah. But but back to cars, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're talking about cars. The 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 widespread availability and relative affordability in in the great auto boom was basically down to uh, the Ford plants in and near Detroit and the way they were a model of mechanized efficiency. Uh-huh. Yeah. We're talking about, famously, the invention of the moving assembly line, causing this division of labor. You, you don't build a car, you do one of several hundred steps over and over. Yes. Having very high wages in these plants, especially compared to other you know, manufacturing jobs, which dropped employee turnover from around 31% to 1.4% uh, uh, annually. Mm-hmm. Hiring new people and, and training them up is expensive. You cut that cost, that can be passed on down the line. And uh, critically, the, the strategy of vertical integration, owning every step of the production process. Yeah. Ford owned his own ironworks, his own lumber yards, his own tannery for the leather bits, glassworks for the glass bits, railroads and ships to, to move everything from place to place. Nearly every step of the way until that finished Model T or whatever it is rolling off the end uh, was Ford owned all the way back. Mm-hmm. Except one thing. He had to buy his rubber from someone else. Oh, how awful. So today we are going to talk about Fordlandia, the, the quest to uh, uh, fill that one gap, to be the source of his own rubber. So in 1926, uh, Henry Ford directed his company to build a massive rubber plantation and a company town in order to staff it. Oh, that's you already know it's going to be bad if there's a company <laughs> town involved. Things aren't going to be good. Uh, both were absolute failures in a story about hubris and neocolonialism. So rubber, let's start with the rubber itself. Okay. It is a product of rubber trees native to the Amazon rainforest. Yes. So the way it works is laborers would go out and tap trees, 
boil down the sap to produce raw rubber and then carry these big rubber balls to towns to, to be sold worldwide. Yeah. I always feel like there's a certain point in someone's youth where you find out that rubber comes from trees. Like you tap a tree to get rubber and mm-hmm. your mind is blown. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I feel... Am I alone in that? Because I feel like as a child, that was like a pivotal moment in my life where I was like, what? And that like old pre-synthetic chewing gum comes from the same place. Yeah. Yeah. Like That's the crazy thing. Yeah. (laughs) Rubber barons set themselves up as middlemen once industry discovered, you know, the very useful properties of this plant product, right? Gaskets and tires, oh my. Uh, so, so these rubber barons, the, the latex lords, built palatial estates in the jungle and forced indigenous people to tap trees under slave conditions. Latex lords sounds like a strange kink. Yeah. Yeah. Is that just because we've been watching so much Farscape? Or... <laughs> oh my god, there should totally be a character. Yeah. Like, there should be someone introduced who's like, that is who I am, that is my name, and you're just like, yep. <laughs> Moya meets the latex lords. Yeah, yeah, latex lords right there. So so all of this profit, all this surplus value was generated by forcing indigenous people to tap trees under slave conditions. In fact, Brazil was the last country in the Western Hemisphere to abolish legal slavery, uh, instead replacing it with de facto slavery. Uh, conditions in the, the north of the country in these rubber producing operations were just terrible. You can easily imagine. Like in one region, the indigenous population uh, was fell by 90% just because of how miserable the working conditions were. In 1876, uh, Henry Wickham, Englishman, very proud and, and Mr. loyal. Mr. Wickham. Mr. Wickham himself. Mr. Wickham. Of Pride and Prejudice fame, yes. Uh, he sm- I'm not going to like this, Mr. Wickham, am I? Well, he smuggled literal tons of rubber tree seeds out of Brazil under a false shipping manifest. Oh. Th- this is played up as like a major act of like biopiracy. Oh. Although a lot of the, the uh, salacious details were invented by Mr. Wickham himself, trying to sort of build his own legend later in life. Oh. Smuggling out rubber seeds was not illegal. (laughs) Then? Forging your manifest was, I guess. Yeah. How much of a a roguish fiend he is, is up for debate. (laughs) (laughs) That Mr. Wickham. But he, he gave these seeds to the British government, and they were used to set up new plantations in, in uh, British colonies like Sri Lanka and Malaysia. Right. And these British plantations were made for maximum production, uh, which undercut the Brazilian-produced rubber, which is just people going out into the wild jungle, after all. Yes. And so this uh, um, cartel set up by the British crown won an effective global monopoly. Yeah. They, they undersold and effectively cut out of the market these Brazilian growers. Yeah. Now, Henry Ford could not stand some monopoly controlling one of his raw materials. Of course. Of course not. In this venture, I should mention, he also had the support of the U.S. State Department, who didn't want a foreign power having an effective monopoly. How, how dare anyone else have a business? <laughs> How dare anyone have the power to exert leverage over American business? Yeah. So to get into that rubber business himself, Ford acquired an area of jungle 
a huge area of jungle, by the way. By the time he was done, he owned uh, uh, something twice the size of Delaware. He was going for his own Disneyland. (laughs) From the government of Brazil. Uh, It was all tax-free land in exchange for 9% of future profits. Oh, they made a bad deal. Right. If you're going to take a percentage, always take it from the gross. Also, this is an, an internal part of the pipeline. There are no profits to be made here. Yeah. That's not what it's for. Part of the deal was also that Ford had the right to operate as an essentially independent state. Oh, what you doing there, Brazil? Why are you letting that happen? (laughs) Because if this worked, there would be a model for their growers to get back into the global uh, uh, rubber trade Mm -hmm. and break this uh, uh, British cartel uh, uh, de facto monopoly. So Ford's planners put their city up on a high area of their plot to protect it from floods. Okay. Which meant it was inaccessible by road or rail. That makes it a little hard to get, like, the rubber out. Yeah, everything had to be shipped in uh, along the Tapajos River and then carried up from the shore. How far you had to carry it depended on the season, whether it was the rainy or the dry season. Yeah. And so when the, the river was low, there there were these floating islands that, that came and went over the seasonal shifts, right? That would just trap boats there. Yeah. So now that we've got our, our place all planned out, we need to bring in workers to clear the land and build the town and, you know, plant the, the first uh, uh, bits of, you know, rubber plantation. And I bet we're going to treat them awful. Well, it wasn't great considering all of the constant attacks from ants, snakes, and scorpions. Oh, God! This, this is what happens when you try to clear-cut the jungle. The jungle cuts back. I don't want to live anywhere where there's scorpions. To deal with all of this excess lumber and, and brush being cleared, they burned it, right? In the middle of the rainy season. Uh, <laughs> so how'd that go? Like, Did that go well? Did they actually, like, burn anything? It was horribly smoky and choky, and it took a lot of, like, kerosene out of their budget. They couldn't have just, like, waited till the next season? There are two seasons in the rainforest. Yeah. They did everything in the wrong one. Could have just, like, chilled for a while. Been like, hey, cool, we got the land, let's just, like... You know, in three months, things will be good. There was also the the big wave of malaria that hit during the, this early clearing period. Because it was the rainy season. <laughs> and every few years, there was another large wave of malaria that ran through as, as Fordlandia developed and grew. Because you know what mosquitoes like? Places with rainy seasons. <laughs> So uh, Ford saw that, you know, he's got all of this uh, forest to clear. Why not publish a brochure about the many uses of these various breeds of Amazon tree and build a sawmill to, to, like, bring in some cash on the side? It never never really generated any notable profits over the entire life of of the town. What, uh, What was he, like, promoting for them? You know, the the strength of the wood and, and its beauty and all, all the good things that you can do with these with v- wood. V- various old growth jungle trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, because it's wild forest and, and not uh, tree plantations, you're, you're not going to get it as efficiently as any other lumber yard that, that had developed by that point in, say, North America. Yeah. Where Ford already had a logging operation. Yeah. I mean, when life gives you lemons, try to 
cut down the tree and sell it. See what happens. So Ford's plan was for Fordlandia to be both a part of the supply chain, obviously, but he also spoke of it as a civilizing mission to recreate the ideal life in the midst of a foreign land. The ideal life, of course, was a Midwestern American town, much like he grew up on. That's controlled by the company. Oh, yeah. In very the middle controlled. of nowhere. <laughs> well, in the middle of a very hard to get to place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's exactly where I want to go. Henry Ford was afflicted by the, the same sort of uh, um, delusion that many, many successful people are. Uh, yeah. I don't know if it's a particularly American thing, but all of the examples I can think of are, which is that success means you're right. Even uh, in things that you aren't necessarily successful in. Th think of any popular, like, big-name scientist with a Twitter account, uh, for an example. Uh-huh. Or, or go back to our uh, Epcot episode and think about Walt Disney's plans yeah. for, for his ideal uh, prototype community. Here's the thing. That's, it's not American. It's just people who have power and yeah. money. Yeah. Just look at, like, any king or mm -hmm. anything mm -hmm. in history. Like, come on. But because Henry Ford had solved manufacturing, therefore he could solve uh, agriculture and society. And society. <laughs> Those two things that are very much like manufacturing. Uh, so company managers were housed in, in a neighborhood a little set off to the side called the American Village or Villa Americana. Mm -hmm. Visiting the American village is just uncanny. It's, it's a very familiar thing in an unfamiliar context. Uh, you, you have American small town Midwestern architecture, right? Uh -huh. Single family homes with yards and driveways. And then you look a little to the left and there is uncut Amazon rainforest. Yeah. <laughs> very strange. It's it's like Edward Scissorhands in, in the middle of the Amazon basin, basically. Yeah, he just like slapped it right there. Right. <laughs> uh, but, but you've got your school, library, hotel. Do they get a lot of tourists? They were hoping, I guess. They, they were future-proofing it for tourists. Yeah. The Villa Americana, though, was the only neighborhood with running water installed in the homes. Oh, just, they're the only ones to get running water. Yeah, the, the people who moved into the project from Michigan and yeah. from Ford's other offices. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody else had to make do with, with their uh, shared wells. Okay. Yeah. The plan, of course, went beyond architecture and, and uh, city planning. Uh, Ford was a big proponent of healthy eating, so the uh, workers' meals that were provided were meatless and only used whole grains. He made a whole vegetarian city. Oh my god. In the land of barbecue. Like You know, he really has an interesting look on what he thinks society should be. Uh, like the, the dance hall that uh, regularly held square dances? Square dances? Well, because Ford had met his wife at a square dance. So square dance is the only type of dancing allowed? <laughs> no, not the only type. There were other dances held, but only uh, in English, only American forms. Uh, poetry readings and, and sing-alongs were also available. Again, only in English. Uh, in fact, local musical instruments were banned, no matter what kind of music you were going to play with them. <sighs> also banned, uh, alcohol, smoking, and prostitution. Okay, he is taking the fun out of life. <laughs> 
I mean, it, it was, all of it. All of it. No fun for anyone. It was the midst of prohibition back in the States. You're not in the States. Let the people drink. Where it was clearly working so well. Oh, yeah. So well. We really had a handle on everything that was going on. Nothing bad was happening. If you took a boat uh, along the Tapajos River, you would find a nearby island that was not owned by Ford uh, called the Island of Innocence. And uh, uh, this island grew a, a real booming business in, in alcohol, sex work, cigarettes, and meat. And meat. I love the meat part. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants a chicken drumstick? Come here. Yes, yes. You, Turkey you, legs by the pound. You can get your burger with a beer and a cigarette, and some people will want to spend time with you in exchange for money. I'm just imagining, like, that stereotypical, like, trench coat drug dealer but it's just like <laughs> it's just like meat dripping jerky. ground chuck just like oozing and out like, of the pockets hey you want the jerky or do you want it raw <laughs> <laughs> i got both for you baby but enough about the prostitution <laughs> we're, we're talking about this like elimination of local culture but the american staff were also pretty bored <laughs> Yeah, there's nothing to do except square dance. So they turned to, you know, hunting and, and fishing and unfamiliar species. And the only sport allowed was golf. And only then after the Americans decided to just build a course so they would have something to do. So they picked the boringest sport <laughs> you can choose. Did he just want people to cry? <laughs> of sadness? Uh, crying into their non-alcoholic beer. Uh, so <laughs> I, when we were actually at the grocery store and I was looking at wine today, I almost picked up a bottle because I was like, oh, this labor looks, the label looks cool. I read it and apparently it was a bottle of wine that didn't have an alcohol content. So it was just dry grape juice? The alcohol content had been removed. Okay. And I was like, what <laughs> is this bullshit? <laughs> And why is it mixed in the middle of the wine aisle? This should be on an end cap somewhere next to the grape juice. I was very angry. It was also way too expensive. Yeah. For, like... For having none of the good stuff. Yes. Yeah. So speaking of the, the sort of cultural imposition, uh, schooling was provided to uh, free of charge for, for every worker's families. Uh, every day started with an American flag-raising ceremony and salute. Course. With uniforms provided for, for everybody to, to look like... They're red, white, and blue. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> I mean, the, the only pictures I've seen were, like, black and white. So you don't, so know. I don't know. They could have been. I don't know. Uh, Ford's greatest pride, of course, was in how he ran his workplace. And those same innovations were put to the test in Fordlandia. Like the, the high wages that squashed turnover in America, but they had the opposite effect in Brazil. Because there's nothing to buy in the middle of the jungle. So without a consumer culture like that, and instead of uh, a high wage making employee loyalty, it just makes employees work a few months, then leave with their savings to, to go to their families or go till their own land somewhere else. They, they might be back next year or in two years. They might not. You don't know. Well, and especially when you know, you're making it so fun to be there. <laughs> yeah, that did not help. Uh, the, the annual turnover rate at Fordlandia was 400%. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. 
<laughs> they just couldn't get out of there fast enough. So every time you say Portlandia, though, mm-hmm. I do think of the show Portlandia. Yes. But I really just want a version of that show set in 1920s, yeah. 30s. The dream of the 20s is alive in, in uh, Fordlandia. There's a whole new project here that can be made. <laughs> Let's go. Put a bird on it, then shoot it. I'm bored. Well, and just think about like all those jokes, but now it is about the fact that like you can't buy meat. <laughs> I have to go to the island to get my black market meat. Yeah, the Sprouts restaurant would just fit. Yeah, it's, right? it's fine. Another part of the factory life that got moved to the plantation life was the nine to five business day and, and time clocks to punch in and out. Uh, now, prime tree tapping hours are around 5 a.m. to noon because of how the sap flows. Uh-huh. <laughs> Did he read up on anything before coming here? As far as trees go, literally no. No, he did not. <laughs> Even any jobs that didn't rely on, you know, the behavior of trees and sap, to do physical work in midday is asking for heat stroke. The, the, you get it done well before the sun is high in the sky and before the temperature rises. And Yeah. That, yeah. Th- that's why the siesta exists. Like it's, it's, it's too freaking hot to work. We could all learn a lot about that. Trees don't work on clocks, though. I don't understand. Like, anybody who's been in any sort of agricultural production would understand why a time clock is just nonsense. So in in 1930, this culture clash boiled over into a full riot. I love a good riot. Uh, Workers were provided meals. Uh, Again, Midwestern health food only. Uh, But they were provided... (laughs) That's like a weird... Yeah. uh, Weird phrase. When you think of Midwestern food today, you think of something that has eight buckets of sour cream in there. (laughs) But vegetarian it's fine there's a side of tater tots but also the dish includes tater tots (laughs) deep fried cheese curds yes with a side of ranch but it's okay there's no meat it's fine (laughs) what was served was served restaurant style you had waiters come and and say uh here's what we have today okay i'll have that okay very good here it is right yeah but to improve efficiency uh management took away the waiters and switched to a cafeteria line okay Workers were already feeling like parts of a machine, and now they are moving down the production line, like Ford's cars. They are, that is the last straw. So they're, they're rioting over cafeteria. They are rioting over being served cafeteria style. The, the actual inciting incident, uh, the, the flash moment, is an argument between a bricklayer and, and one of the, the uh, work supervisors in the mess hall in this newly installed cafeteria. But that was the the one change in conditions that really, that made that flashpoint possible. Yeah. The first thing to be smashed to pieces was the big time clock. (laughs) Yes! But buildings were burned, uh, uh, telegraph lines were cut, so nobody could could call uh, back to the office to say what was happening. The Americans uh, uh, report hearing chants of Brazil for Brazilians and kill all the Americans. (laughs) Some, Can't blame them. Some managers escaped by boat downriver. Others, including the cook, were run off into the jungle and hid there for days. <laughs> well, I mean, I get it. The cook was probably like, they have reasons to be mad. I haven't been able to cook the chicken in <laughs> months. The, this whole event was known as the Breaking Pans Riot. It really is about... They broke all the pans. It, it's about <laughs> the food. Yeah. The thing is, 
like being vegetarians, fine. I'm not hating on vegetarians. I'm hating on the fact that they took away an entire town's choice. <laughs> being forced vegetarian, not great. Not great. Uh, so Ford staff reclaimed the city with the help of Brazilian soldiers that were flown in by the founder of Pan American Airlines. Amazing. Industrialists, they stick together. Yep. So a new manager uh, uh, of the, the whole town was installed, Archibald Johnson. Uh, none had lasted a full year by then. That 400% turnover rate kind of also reflected the city managers. That makes sense. It was it's a, not a fun town. It's a bad job. You've been given an impossible job. Just leave. So Johnson was the first one that was considered acceptable. What a high bar to clear. Uh, because he paved the roads that had been built. He, he finished building worker housing. Imagine that. This place has been up and running for four years, and they hadn't finished building worker houses. Oh, God. He also built access roads connecting Fordlandia itself to, to the rest of the land acquired. The plantation parts. Where, where you gotta go to work. Where you gotta plant the trees and then strip the trees. And tap those trees. Speaking of those trees, uh, Fordlandia operated for a few decades, and not a single Ford vehicle ever used rubber produced there. Amazing! Like I said, at the top, abject failure. And the root of the problem was Ford's refusal to hire a botanist or any other Anybody sort of anything about rubber? rubber production expert at all. They made every mistake you could. <laughs> I like to think that he hired people who tapped trees for, like, maple syrup and mm -hmm. was like, oh, it's the same thing. You, we'll just follow you. The problem is he hired people who tapped trees in Riverdale. Who don't know when to tap trees. Because once again, they did it backwards. They planted in the hot and dry season. So the initial crop failed pretty quickly. The, the way Brazil's wild rubber trees work... Uh, is they rely on other plants to protect them. It, it's an interconnected, mutually beneficial ecosystem, right? Yeah. Like wild growth is. Ford planted nothing but rubber trees in oh. nice close rows for maximum efficiency. Yeah. Now, British colonial plantations used roughly the same method because in Malaysia, Sri Lanka, etc., there are no pests to eat rubber trees. There, there's no rubber blight in, there, in Southeast Asia. No predator of the rubber tree. Exactly. They, they took advantage of the problem of invasive species. They, they made that work for them. Mm -hmm. uh, so back in the, the tree's native Brazil, blight jumped very, very easily from tree to tree in these rows. Uh, tons and tons of pesticides could not stop the spread of insects. Uh, workers would collect caterpillars from the leaves to burn in giant bonfires week after week, season after season. This caused a pretty rapid bit of, of uh, uh, natural selection. Ah. They, they sort of bred this uh, uh, species to have its caterpillars, you know, hatch and they... eat on the top of the leaves oh, out of sight. I thought you were going to tell me they became flame resistant. <laughs> burn them anymore. Yes. I was going to be like, what the f***? That's amazing. The famed asbestos caterpillar of Brazil. No, no, they, they just stayed out of sight on the top of the leaves where you could not see I them. I mean, that's fine. That's not as cool. I was just really imagining, like, they're like, okay, we're going to burn these caterpillars and then all of them being like, no, motherfucker, we're coming to get you. And then they just crawl out of the fire while still burning and be like, we're fine. <laughs> 
And then that was going to be the next downfall of the town as the caterpillars <laughs> took over and they ate everyone. Yeah, yeah. And then the T-virus got loose. <laughs> so uh, uh, trees were planted on slopes so that no land would be left unproductive. Those trees were just damaged by the wind, sun, erosion, just left out exposed. Dense foliage provides wild rubber trees with moisture in the dry season. Whoops, don't have that anymore. Uh So now they've got to water their trees, pick off the bugs, just coat them in in chemicals for the other bugs. It never worked. It never worked. (laughs) They might have done better if they did have flaming caterpillars. (laughs) At least then you'd have a story to, to right? send back home. Then the tourists would come mm-hmm. to see the flaming caterpillars. Instead, the best they did was, like, fish for river manatee. Ooh. Leave the river manatees alone. So so the plan, the plan to go at this without uh, aid of any experts was to do the, the engineer's loop, right? Of, of try it, identify the problem, fix the problem, try it again. That made for incredible efficiency in manufacturing. It it made Henry Ford into Henry Ford with a capital HF, right? It doesn't work in agriculture. Trees aren't cars. Ecosystems are densely interconnected and interreliant. And having an expert might save you from making mistakes that would take generations of tree growth to fix. There's no rapid prototyping. There's no rapid anything when you're planting and growing and harvesting trees. Yeah, they're not necessarily the fastest thing there. So as harvest season after harvest season came and went with no harvest to speak of, uh, and failure became more and more obvious, Henry Ford defended Fordlandia by emphasizing the cultural benefits over the business plan. He, he was a man that did not manufacture cars. He's a man that, that uh, manufactured men. <laughs> I manufacture men! Much like the Caminoans. I'm just imagining that speech now. Yeah. I don't manufacture cars. I manufacture men. (laughs) In fact, you can see a diorama at the Ford Pavilion in the 1933 World's Fair. Hey! Or at least you could if you were around in 1933 through 34. Yeah. That shows a white-suited American instructing a nearly bare indigenous worker on how to render the the rubber in this lush field of trees. Oh, you mother... I've sworn so much in this episode. I am sorry. Yeah, you have. (laughs) Uh, We got a whole field of ducks. They're flying (laughs) south for the winter. That's exactly it. They're going home for the holidays. Now, I don't know the dress code out in the fields of the Fordlandia plantation. But I do know who was teaching who how rubber worked. Yeah. And I do know that there were no lush, successful tree growths in the background. So, like, ah. Was that painted by um, someone that they just, like, told, like, this is what we want you to paint? Or was it more like... Yes, come paint this from real life, but we need you to totally lie about it. <laughs> I would imagine that the model maker of this diorama, or a diorama never yeah. left the United States. Okay. What materials they were provided, I do not know. As the years stretched on, it became clear that, that no matter how you defined the mission of Fordlandia, it was a bust. So in 1933, a second city and plantation were founded on yet another land purchase adjacent to it. This one called Belterra. Ah. We're not going to give up. We're going to do it again, but slightly better. Belterra learned from Fordlandia's lessons. 
there was less social engineering. They allowed people to have fun? Like, the, for instance, the, the school still had mandatory uniforms, and everybody learned from the same uh, school primer that Henry Ford did as a young man in the United States. But you were allowed to eat meat and play uh, uh, music on uh, uh, non-American instruments. It's an improvement. It's an improvement. Also, botanists were allowed. <laughs> oh my god, thank thank you. It produced 750 tons of latex over the next 10 years. It's amazing what happens when you listen to a botanist. Their goal was 38,000 tons of latex over 10 years. <laughs> Just shameful. They, they made more than 1% of their goal. Almost two. Almost two. Almost. Henry Ford II, the grandson of Henry Ford, took over the company in 1943. Six weeks later, he sold all the land back to the, to the nation of Brazil for a massive financial loss. That's for the best. Yeah. It's for the best. Uh, the, the first thing he wanted to do taking over the business was get rid of things that were not profitable, and Fordlandia was the first thing to go. Yeah. Henry Ford himself died in 1947. Despite Fordlandia being his passion project for, for many years, being something he, he believed in the, the possibility of, the dream of very strongly, and being very hands-on, he never visited. He never even visited the country of Brazil. Dude! He almost did once. Maybe if you would have gone, you would have been like, you know, this is a bad plan. This is not working out well. Uh, d despite being built on a, a terrible, terrible foundation from any direction you looked at it, the, the reason Fordlandia was abandoned in the end without a third try to, to make it work is that synthetic rubbers developed during World War II had almost completely eliminated the market for natural rubber. Yeah. There's, there's no point. No. Oh. You're trying to grow something you don't need. Yep. Fordlandia, though, uh, despite having no Ford present, still exists as a town of roughly 3,000 people. Oh. Uh, less than 100 lived there for, for a number of decades and still until a sudden population boom began around 2005. Why? People just started moving into that area of the country and found a town there. A whole lot of houses and buildings to reclaim. And like, yeah, all right. This stuff was built to last. Re replace the windows, sweep out the floors. The landmark water tower uh, erected in 1930 still stands, although the Ford logo has completely faded away. The hospital, sawmill, and workshop still stand, uh, empty of their old equipment. Some are falling apart a bit more than others. Mm -hmm. If you make it that far into the country uh, on a real wild... Um, safari of a vacation, locals will be glad to offer you tours, and you can see the Midwest suburb planted in the center of a rainforest. You can see a big graveyard full of malaria dead. Huh? I thought you would enjoy that. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, I was like, ooh, we should go there. Uh, and, and you can... You can use that hotel that they built. <laughs> and you can see this gradually fuzzing border between former plantation and wild forest. Yeah. Like, if you look on Google Maps, you will see, like, these access roads going back around Fordlandia and Belterra into what were clear-cut and, and row-planted rubber trees. Yeah. So, darling, what have you learned? Ford was a very boring man <laughs> who did not like any joy in his life. 
He did enjoy swinging his partner round and round. And I feel like I should have known this. (laughs) Because we have a Ford Fiesta. The party car. The party car, as I call it. And they were like, oh man, basic Ford Fiesta comes with ambient lighting. And I was like, okay, cool. The party car's got some cool lighting. You know what lights up? The cup holder and my toes. (laughs) And this was a selling point for them. I feel like after your America's best known anti-Semite, being canceled for being too into square dancing is way down the list. I mean, yeah, but I feel like now, now I feel connected more to the car though with this like, (laughs) oh, whoever decided this, they like knew that Ford was awful. And they're like, yeah, dude had a weird idea of partying. Mm-hmm. Also, probably not big into the word fiesta. He seemed very English only. Uh, clearly anti-Portuguese in, Port- in Fordlandia. I have to assume anti-Spanish in, in other uh, places. But no, I, I learned more about all of this. I, I, knew, I knew of this. I, mm-hmm. I knew mm-hmm. that he had a town that he created and a plantation for rubber. Yes. I knew it did badly. <laughs> I didn't know how bad. Very, very badly. And how awful it was. A certain degree of success becomes brain poison. (laughs) Yeah. And Fordlandia is such a a clear um, example of it. Like we we mentioned uh, the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. Um, All of Elon Musk's uh, uh, dreams of transit (sighs) that don't understand how long it takes a person to get in and out of a car. Basic things like that. Freaking like tunnel (laughs) the chicago tunnel thing that keeps popping up do you not understand anything about an urban setting Mm -hmm. or the fact that we have one it's called the blue line and it works great actually it works really well does it need to be fixed up a bit yeah but it's fine (laughs) or or again even small things like every time neil degrasse tyson uh, uh, accidentally invents sociology again, as if it's a field that doesn't that hasn't existed for 150 years. Yeah, very strange. Very strange. People be weird. So if if anybody listening to this happens to be fabulously successful, or becomes such later in your life, please hire the botanist. Be, <laughs> recognize that you are successful at one thing, <laughs> maybe two at the most. <laughs> Listen to experts for everything else. Yeah. Yeah. So that we're going to take a quick break and be back with some letters to read. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. Hello. And at, at the end of our episode, before we say goodbye, we have to talk a little more directly to people. Through the medium of letters. Letters. Kristen writes in, uh, shares that their favorite plant is the humble and robust cacti. Uh, And there are, uh, fun fact, over 12,500 individual species of cacti on this planet. And uh, they all vary in how interesting they are. So one of them is really boring. That's what I'm hearing from Kristen. There's one super boring cactus. Maybe. But I'm also a big fan of cactus. I like them. You just got one today. I just got a new one. On the day of recording, you bought a new little cactus. Yes, and it's now in a dinosaur. (laughs) 
So thanks. Yeah. Thanks Thank for you, Kristen. In. Ari writes in, uh, and they have been listening for a little under a year. Good job. Thank you for joining us. And their favorite plant is Methuselah, the world's oldest tree. And it looks like the world's oldest tree. <laughs> it's very gnarly and twisty and cool. Uh, they also provide two uh, show suggestions for us that uh, would be pretty interesting topics to talk about. So thank you very much. Uh, speaking of things provided, though, we got a picture of a kitty cat. It's so cute. Don't know the name of the kitty, but it's pretty. Thanks, Ari. It's really cute. Uh, Isaac writes in, their favorite plant is Rafflesia, uh, the three-foot-wide flower in the Amazon that smells like rotting flesh or kelp. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a great plant. I mean, we were talking about the Amazon rainforest, after all. Yes, you, you correctly uh, predicted this episode, apparently. Yes. The, the reason I wanted to know people's favorite plant is because I knew I'd be talking about rubber if you didn't get the connection to the prompt. Just I, FYI. I think we all got it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, we also got a letter from Peter once again. And Peter uh, attacks the, the prompt in uh, a couple of ways. Their favorite uh, plant they have a personal relationship with is a, a, a couple of Trinidad scorpion chili plants that Peter grows at home and even provided pictures of. Oh. This is the first time in two years they've given fruit, so that is pretty exciting. Ooh. However, Peter's uh, uh, favorite theoretical plant, I, I suppose, is uh, either the, the simple rose with its complex flowers, vibrant colors, and, you know... They smell real pretty, uh, but also the moonlighter, the gimpy, uh, the suicide plant, scientifically known as Dendroctony moroides. Bum, bum, bum. What's it do? Uh, it is bad. It, it has incredibly, incredibly painful stingers. Uh, it, it's found uh, in the Australasia region of the world because, of course, if it's painful, it's from Australia. <laughs> People who are stung by it report agonizing pain for two to three days. However, in some cases, it can uh, uh, last for years oh. after the incident. The reason it is known as the suicide plant is because horses uh, that are stung by it have been known to throw themselves off of cliffs Aww. to escape the pain. Aww. So uh, everybody watch out and, and learn how to identify that plant and never go near it. Please, I beg of you. Oh my god. Do you have a favorite plant? Audrey 2, a mean green mother from outer space. Yeah. Who is also bad. Yeah. 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 Do you have a favorite plant? Keep in mind, many of your plants are within earshot and they will get jealous. I like all my plants. <laughs> I posted pictures of my plant babies today. Yeah. Yes. Though I think my favorite household plant right now is the skull I have that has an air plant growing out of its eye. Mm-hmm. It looks cool. This is a ceramic sculpture in the form of a skull. Yeah, it's not a real skull. Not I'm not an that bad. Animal or human skull. No. No. That would be quite a conversation piece. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, thank you to everyone who wrote in. If you would like to send us a letter, where can those go, dear? Historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And we love to keep in touch with you. We love to hear your, your uh, stories, your show suggestions, like Ari provided. Uh, your corrections, your questions, and again, our regular episode prompts. And for our next episode, we are coming up on our annual New Year's special. So you know yeah. what that means. 
We want to hear your favorite thing uh, that happened in 2020. Yeah. I mean, we already got one that was sent in advance, so we read in our previous episode. Yeah. Yeah. And again, where can those go? Historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. I'm just thinking about how that's like, oof. I think that everyone's got at least one thing that was good. Yeah, yeah. There there are, like any year, some shared highs and some shared lows. Yep. Uh however, if you were to rate them on a scale of ten, <laughs> this year you will find this year distinct from others. Yes. Speaking of joining the conversation, you can always find us on our social media channels. We are talking Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And those are all at History Honeys. Uh, you can also leave us a rating and review on please, iTunes please. or wherever you get our podcast. Pretty please do it. Thank you. Mwah. That's you can, for you. You can also tell a friend. Word of mouth goes a long way. You can uh, have something to talk about with your friends about now and be like, hey, they're back. It was a while. Mwah, mwah. That's for you and your friend. Why are you kissing random people over the internet? Because I'm nice. <laughs> okay. I guess that's it. I guess that is it. I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And history's better with, with your honey. honey.